And we welcome you to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. We explore the world of dogs today in two different interviews, one of them with uh, Stanley Corin, responsible for uh, a wonderful book uh, called How Dogs Think, What the World Looks Like to Them and Why They Act the Way They Do. Uh, Dr. Stanley Corin is a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia and has done extensive study on dog and human uh, interaction. He has been on national public radio and all over the place on, on, on television, and so it's very likely that you have uh, encountered him and his uh, expertise. And this book is uh, terrifically put together. And uh, he is also the author of a book called The Intelligence of Dogs. And Dr. Stanley Corin, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you for having me. I really have enjoyed this book, uh, partly as uh, the owner of a golden retriever and a cocker spaniel, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and it addressed certain questions which uh, my wife and I have sort of picked up along the way, and I think many people would, would really benefit from, from reading your book. Give us some sense, from a scientific perspective, how much can we know about what is going on inside the brain, inside the mind of a dog? Well, we can know a lot more than people tend to think we know. Um, The very first thing uh, is that uh, we can learn about the dog's senses and uh, how the dog sees uh, and senses the world. Um, And knowing that, that tells us certain things about what the dog's going to be capable of doing, because obviously if he can't see or hear something... um, then uh, he's not going to be able to learn anything about it. On the other hand, if he's, got, uh, if he's picking up information which is not available to human beings, then he's going to be responding to, to aspects of the world which you know, leave us sort of in total puzzlement. Um, but uh, one of the things which you have to understand about dogs is that they have, um, I'll give you the rule of thumb, uh, the... Um, dog has about the language capacity equivalent to about a two-year-old child. So um, that's about 165 words, signs, signals, that sort of thing. And the super dogs uh, have the language capacity equivalent to about a two-and-a-half-year-old child. So that would be about uh, 250 uh, words, um, sounds, uh, signals, and that sort of thing. Um, so if you really want to understand what's going on inside your dog's head um, and how your dog is going to respond to certain things, then your first best guess is, you know, how would my two, two-and-a-half-year-old child uh, act in this same situation? And uh, that will tend to give you a good idea. Uh, we also now know that uh, dogs learn um, language by just simply listening to us. Um, they, If we use a word consistently for a particular action or an object, uh, they will learn that word. Um, that's why so many people, you know, find that their dog goes absolutely uh, ballistic when they say, you know, uh, I'm going to go take the dog for a walk. Um, and then they try to spell it out. You know, I'm going to take the dog for W-A-L-K, and of course the dog learns that very quickly as well. <laughs> um, it, dogs also learn language in a way which, which was quite striking um, when we found out. Um, there's a dog in Germany by the name of Rico who has been tested and found to have, he's, he's a border collie, so he's one of the super dogs, um, and uh, he has over 200 uh, words that he knows. 
And he learns these words using a, a principle which we call a fast-tracking principle or an exclusionary principle. And it works sort of like this. Suppose I take a half a dozen objects and I put them out on the floor and I say, Rico, go get the framus. Now, he's never heard the word framus before. Uh, but he runs out over there to the pile of objects and he knows the name of five out of the six objects. And he figures out on his own that the other one, the, the one whose name he doesn't know, must be the framus. And he'll bring that back to you. And the next time you test him and say, go get the Framus, he'll run right out and get that. Now, we thought that only human beings and maybe sort of the language-learning apes had that ability. Uh, so this is really quite remarkable. Wow, it certainly is. Um, when we're talking about the whole world of dogs and the range of, for instance, trainability and, and intelligence, which are not one and the same thing, um, how wide a range are we talking about. And I guess I'm not even thinking so much about these really exceptional individual dogs, these super dogs, but thinking more generally amongst the breeds. Um, how far a span or wide a span are we talking about? Well, it, it, it is pretty large. I mean, the difference between uh, the top dogs and the bottom dogs uh, is about eight or nine months in terms of human uh, development. And given where they are in terms of the scale, uh, that that's a lot. Um, so uh, you know your your top dogs, your brightest dogs. Uh, I'll I'll give you the the top brightest, uh, the top seven bright breeds in terms of working in obedience intelligence at least, um, and that would be the border collie, uh, the poodle, the uh, German shepherd, the uh, golden retriever, uh, the Doberman pincher, the little Shetland sheepdog, and the Labrador retriever. So those are the top. Um, seven. Um, they are really quite remarkable, and they can learn a task, um, you know, many tasks, um, uh, if they only have, you know, one or two things to learn, uh, they can learn that in, um, you know, a half an hour, sometimes in as few as, as uh, five or ten uh, practice tries. Uh, the equivalent uh, for one of the dogs lower down in the scale, for example, my uh, beagle, who is uh, seven from the bottom, is that, you know, he will learn, um, it will take him about two weeks to learn what my retriever learns in, um, in about uh, half an hour. So that's a huge difference. I mean, the beagle will eventually learn it, but, um, you know, you've got to work at it. Hmm. I suppose within breeds, we need to make sure that we're not overgeneralizing, but is there very much range of difference between the smartest beagle and the dumbest beagle, if I may speak so frankly? Uh, yeah, I mean, there is, there is a difference in, in terms of uh, uh, within each breed. I mean, it's the same sort of thing where, you know, we can say that humans are smarter than cows, but I'm sure that there's some humans where you have your doubts, right? Uh, and, uh, and that's a form of intelligence which we call adaptive intelligence. You see, there really are three separate types of intelligence. The first one is what we call instinctive intelligence, and that's what the dog was bred to do. So, you know, retrievers retrieve and herding dogs herd, and, and you really can't compare them because they're sort of an apples and oranges kind of a thing. Um, the working in obedience intelligence, which we were just talking about before, is the equivalent of school learning. So um, it's what dogs will learn under uh, our uh, tutelage and, and uh, you know, and, and what they'll do for us. Um, and then there's uh, what we call adaptive intelligence, and that's really what the dog can learn for himself. You can think of that as sort of his native smarts. And um, 
there's a lot of variability there. And the dogs who are at the top in terms of this, um, you know, are really dreams to, to, to train. I mean, you know, they seem to anticipate what you're, what you're going to do. Um, the uh, dogs who are at the bottom of it, um, you know, sometimes they'll act very clever, but sometimes they'll act totally clueless. And what it shows up mostly is in terms of the reliabilities. So, you know, the, the really bright dogs um, will respond to the first command maybe 95% of the time, um, whereas the dogs which are in the bottom might respond uh, to the first command only 25 or 35% of the time. Hmm. You mentioned at some point in the book that just as with humans, uh, when we're talking about dogs, we can uh, find ourselves drawn into this not simple debate of nature versus nurture and the fact that uh, a dog is, is born with an array of instincts and with a certain amount of potential, but there is something to be said for the way in which uh, a, a dog's innate abilities and talents are, are nurtured. Yeah, it's the same sort of thing. You know, suppose that Albert Einstein had been born into, you know, some South American Indian tribe. Um, you know, he never would have produced the theory of relativity because he never would have had the education and, and um, you know, the exposure to, to science and that sort of thing. And we know that there's a, an awful lot which goes on within a dog, um, which is determined by the environment. In fact... Um, a number of years ago, uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, Army was um, uh, trying to breed better dogs for the service. And these are, you know, included dogs like uh, sentry dogs and tracking dogs and, and dogs doing all the neat things which we want dogs to do, like finding bomb as, uh, and, and mines and that sort of thing. Um, and they developed, uh, in conjunction with a bunch of scientists, uh, something which uh, they used to call the super dog program. And what this really involved was um, taking young puppies, virtually from the day that the puppies were born, and putting them through a regime uh, which involved stimulating them. It involved, you know, picking them up and talking to them and tipping them back and forth and, and uh, touching their feet and um, uh, giving them a sort of a, exposing them to things like, like cold uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, for very brief moments of time, uh, putting them under what seems like a little bit of stress. But what ends up is that these dogs actually learn faster. They have bigger brains. Uh, they seem to be more emotionally stable. And um, uh, they actually grow faster and so forth. So, you know, that early experience uh, takes a dog and uh, makes that dog uh, smarter by actually affecting its physiology as much as anything else. It's also the case that if a dog is going to take instructions from human beings, that dog has to be exposed to human beings. and has to be exposed to human beings um, for a reasonable amount of time and reasonably early. Um, if, if you if you wait until the dog is tw just 12 weeks of age and he hasn't had adequate exposure to humans, he will never learn from humans. You know, that, that early gap is, is just lost, and, um, and the dog becomes uh, poorly socialized, highly emotional, and virtually untrainable. Interesting. Talking about that reminds me of, uh, of a very interesting moment in the book when you uh, talk about dogs and wolves. And um, you, you mention a term called uh, neoteny, 
which is a way in which we can kind of compare various breeds of dogs with the wolf, which I guess we can consider at least to some extent as an ancestor of the domesticated dog. Yeah, wolves are probably uh, the major ancestor. I mean, there's some evidence now that um, we also domesticated jackals and dingoes and coyotes and certain foxes and some of the wild dogs. Um, And sort of the reason there's so many different shapes, dogs running from, you know, a dachshund to a Great Dane, um, is because we have, you know, so many different flavors of genes in them. Um, but the real difference between a dog and a wolf is that essentially our domestic dogs are wolf puppies. Um, neoteny simply refers to the fact that the adult still has some of the characteristics of the child, of the young uh, animal. Uh, for example, in, out in the wild, all wild dogs, uh, all wild canines have pricked ears, but the puppies have uh, lopped ears, ears which flop over. And many, many of our dogs um, have uh, flopped ears, uh, which is a sign that they're um, uh, much younger. Uh, the same thing with push faces. Um, you know, uh, all of the wild dogs have very sharp faces, and we have dogs which have the shortened faces, which are very characteristic of puppies. But more importantly, they have the behavioral characteristics of puppies. And part of what a, uh, a puppy has is he's much more accepting. Um, he's, he's in, in many respects, less fearful than the adult. Um, in addition to that, he's wi- much more willing to accept leadership. So he sort of looks for somebody to provide uh, leadership. And that's really important if we're going to want to be able to control our dogs, um, you know, that they accept our leadership and look to us for guidance. Now, it's rather interesting to note that, that um, the degree of neoteny uh, varies uh, in, in uh, the domestic dogs. So the ones which look more like wolves, so would, you know, would be something like uh, uh, the Siberian Husky or the Malamute or the German Shepherd look very much like wolves, as opposed to those which don't look like wolves, um, you know, which have sort of flatter faces and lopped ears and that sort of thing, which would be things like... Oh, the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, the Pug. The Pekingese. Uh, the Pekingese, yeah, that sort of thing. Um, and actually, if you look at um, canine language, and, and dogs do have you know, their own language, um, the uh, dogs with the, which look wolfier um, actually have uh, the more adult language. So they are much more willing to use uh, dominant signals and... Uh, uh, aggression signals and that sort of thing than do the ones which look like puppies. Mm. So by wiring them so that um, uh, they're a bit tamer and that sort of thing than the wolves, we've also made them younger, and uh, we've also uh, made them more docile and more baby-like. And maybe that's one of the reasons, you know, we, we recognize that in our dogs. You know, when we go to talk to our dogs, we tend to talk to them the same way that we do the babies. So, you know, a mother will go to a baby and say, oh, how are you? And, you know, she'll sort of raise her voice uh, up at a higher pitch. Well, we tend to do that with our dogs. We go, oh, how are you, Lassie? Oh, what a good girl. And we sort of repeat those, those things over and over hmm. again. Um, and uh, so people tend to respond to uh, dogs in much the same way that they respond to young children. I'm speaking with Dr. Stanley Korn about his book called How Dogs Think. You spend a, a long time, Dr. Korn, talking about the various senses for, for dogs, um, how they hear, how they, uh, how they see, how they taste. Uh, 
how how all these various stimuli uh, come into the dog. Why is it important for us to understand the senses of the dog uh, to this extent? How is that helpful to us? Well, obviously, if a dog can't see a distinction out in the world, then he can't learn it. Um, and it's also the case that if a dog is responding to things that we can't pick up through our senses, um, then we may be mystified as to why the dog is doing this particular thing. For example, um, a lot of people feel that dogs uh, are, are colorblind in the sense that they have, uh, you know, see the world in black and white. Well, that's not true. It turns out that dogs do have poorer color vision than we do, but they see, still see some colors. They see the world in shades of yellow, gray, and blue. Um, now, that has certain implications. Uh, for example, right now the most popular color for dog toys is either red or that sort of safety orange which they use in traffic cones. Um, now, uh, for human beings, that's a very obvious color. If you see something like that on the grass, I mean, it, you know, it just, just sort of leaps out and shouts at us. However, it turns out that that color, that red or that orange, uh, is seen by the dog as the same color that grass is seen. It's just seen as a little bit darker. So you go out and you buy Lassie this, this bright red toy and you throw it on the ground and she runs right past it and you think she's being either stupid or obstinate. Well, in fact, she's not. She just hasn't seen it. Another thing has to do with, with the dog's sense of smell. Uh, for example, human beings have in their noses um, the uh, scent-detecting cells or olfactory cells. Uh, are uh, We have about 5 billion of them. Now, my little beagle has 225 million of those. So, you know, it's a huge difference. And he's got 40 times more uh, of his brain uh, dedicated to smell. So that makes him a 1,000, and some people suggest maybe up to 10,000 times uh, more sensitive to smells than we are. You know, dogs are so good in terms of their, uh, their smell that they're now being used to detect arsons. Um, they can go into a burned building and smell the hydrocarbons, which were used to, to, to accelerate the flames. There's also now a whole bunch of scientific studies which show that, that dogs uh, can detect uh, certain forms of cancer uh, just by scent. Uh, for example, they can detect melanoma, which is a really big, bad one. And the two recent studies, uh, which, uh, one of which suggests that dogs can detect um, lung cancer, by simply smelling air that people have breathed into a receptacle, um, or prostate cancer by uh, smelling uh, urine. So, I mean, that's an awful lot of sensitivity. Um, and it also explains why dogs are so impolite. You know, when <laughs> Aunt Martha comes in and they stick their nose in her crotch, well, you know, they're actually seeking information. They're not just, you know, trying to be, uh, um, you know, nasty or sexual or whatever else. Hmm. It's, it's human beings who respond badly in this case. I mean, there's, there's a wonderful case which occurred up in Danbury, Connecticut, and um, a uh, local activist charged a judge with uh, sexual harassment because the judge would often bring his golden retriever into the court. And on three separate occasions, she claimed the dog had stuck his nose up under uh, her skirt, and uh, the judge didn't do anything about it, and she felt that, that was sexual harassment. So the thing went to court, and the, and the judge presiding on that particular hearing uh, concluded that impoliteness on the part of the dog does not constitute sexual harassment on the part of the, the owner. So, <laughs> Interesting question. <laughs> um, I read with great interest the, the portion where you talk about a dog's hearing, because our Cocker Spaniel, who's uh, 
15 years old now, uh, is pretty much completely deaf. So I was glad to read your, your advice that it's nice then to have another dog in the house, which we do, because that can serve as a real aid to the dog who doesn't have much hearing. You go on to talk about a whole lot of other matters which affect older dogs in your chapter called The Wrinkled Mind. And I imagine that this in itself could be a fascinating area of study to try to determine just what occurs in the mind of the dog. And is it something, an aging process, which closely resembles that which occurs in humans? Well, in fact, it, it resembles the process in humans so much so that the changes in the aging dog's mind is now being used as the model for um, the changes which occur in human beings. And dogs do suffer from, some, from uh, certain problems which are very much akin to uh, Alzheimer's disease. It's really interesting to note that, that uh, and this brings us back sort of to the, to the issue of the dog's senses, you know, it used to be the case that people would say, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Um, well, it turns out that sometimes um, that's simply because of the fact that the aging dog, like aging people, will tend to have sort of uh, reduced uh, eyesight and reduced hearing. Um, so it's not so much they can't learn, it's just they can't, you know, perceive what you're doing. Um, but it's one of the most fascinating things which comes out is uh, some information which says it's not that dogs can't learn new things, it's that they have difficulty unlearning old things. So you want a dog to do something different in a situation where they've always done one thing, um, and that's hard for them. That, that's really difficult for them. And that suggested to people that maybe, you know, the same situation goes with people. And, in fact, they took that information back into the human psychological lab, and they've been able to show that that's one of the problems which people have. And that's why uh, older individuals tend to be much more conservative and tend to, to prefer routine to a much greater extent. Mm. So, you know, the information feeds backwards and forwards. The more we know about the dog's mind, the more it suggests about the human mind, and vice versa. Fascinating. I especially appreciated the moment in the book when you talk about the way in which uh, you've developed a, a system to communicate with your dog, a, a, to say good dog to the dog in a way that you'll still be able to do it long after the day when they're able to actually hear those words. Oh, yeah. It's really important to have signals for everything which is important. For me, when, when I say, you know, good dog, uh, when my dog has done something right, I also take my uh, a right hand and I just flash the fingers twice. So it's sort of, you know, uh, uh, make a fist and then open the hand twice, uh, to very quickly. And that means good dog. And right now I have an old dog um, who's about, who's lost about 70% of his hearing. And, um, you know, I can still communicate with him. And he still knows when he's done the right thing. He looks up at me and I, you know, flash that twice and say, good dog, because he's just done the right thing. And his tail bats back and forth. And, and he's a very happy camper. Hmm. Well, I think a lot of people will be happier after reading this very helpful book called How Dogs Think, What the World Looks Like to Them and Why They Act the Way They Do. It's published by Free Press, the author, Dr. Stanley Corrin. Dr. Corrin, a great pleasure to read this book and to speak with you about it today on The Morning Show. I thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Morning Show on WGTD-HD, your gateway to public radio. I'm Gregory Berg. And I am really delighted for the next few minutes to be able to speak with a very gifted writer by the name of Emily Yaffe. Perhaps you know her work from Slate.com. Perhaps you've read her work in Esquire or the New York Times or O Magazine. And uh, she is responsible 
for a, a brand new book that is uh, so entertaining and interesting called What the Dog Did, Tales from a Formerly Reluctant Dog Owner. The book is published by Bloomsbury. And I'm really excited to speak with Emily Yaffe about her delightful new book. Emily Yaffe, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you so much, Greg. Before we get into dogs, can I just ask you very briefly to tell us a little bit about your work with Slate.com? I have a feeling the vast majority of our listeners know what Slate.com is, but maybe for the sake of those that don't, just explain what that is. Well, uh Slate.com is an online magazine, and we cover everything from politics to culture. Uh, we do first-person uh, stories. I write a column there. I write two columns, one heavy petting, uh, where I deal uh, a great deal with my uh, beagle and two incontinent cats. And I also write the human guinea pig column, where I go do things uh, you all wish someone else would do. Uh, for example... I, in middle age, entered a beauty pageant. I entered the Mrs. Washington, D.C. pageant. Uh, and as I like to say, I won not only because I was the sole contestant in the pageant. <laughs> uh, I've done other things like uh, take a vow of silence while conducting my normal life and uh, various adventures. Very good. Well, speaking of adventures, certainly owning uh, owning a dog has been that for you. That's for sure. Um, tell us a little bit about the genesis of this book. How did it come about? Well, it came about uh, one day, about three months after my family had convinced me what we really needed to make ourselves happy was a starved, stray, neurotic, unhousebroken beagle, because uh, my husband and daughter both desperately wanted a dog. We got this dog who had so many problems, they quickly abandoned her, leaving me, who works at home, to spend all my (laughs) free time uh, trying to attend to her various uh, what-goes-in-and-what-goes-out needs. And I was so depressed, I I said to my editor at Slate, you know, I want to write a piece about what it's like to be a cat person who gets stuck with a dog. So I did that, and I got such an overwhelming response. And I thought dog people would denounce me, but they were so understanding, and they said, hang in there, it will get better. And they were right, and I think it either is because it has gotten better, or you just can't remember what life was like before you devoted every waking minute to your dog. Uh, But it has gotten better, and so from there I started collecting dog stories, I started having dog adventures, I, I got trained as a head psychic extremely unsuccessfully. I spent a day with the beagles of Homeland Security trying to sniff out sausages and apples and passengers' uh, luggage. And I collected amazing stories from friends and put them all together in this book, What the Dog Did. You know, one of the one of my favorite moments in the book actually comes at the very end in the acknowledgments when you say that this book started with an article at Slate.com where you have been able to write about such things as my animals' bodily functions while my brilliant colleagues write about how to save the world. Uh, This really must be kind of fun for you to be able, and not just, of course, in this book, but especially in this... it's kind of depressing. You know, (laughs) the thing is people are writing about global warming and Iraq, and um, I'm writing about how to keep your animals from urinating on your bed. But but, uh, we all have our journey in life. And hey, uh, that matter of urinating in, in one's bed, that's, a, that's an important matter to address. Um, 
one of the important distinctions that you draw early on uh, between dogs and cats is, I think, something worth talking about. When you say cats are private, dogs are public, that probably uh, uh, is, is uh, a very, very good way to put it. How have you experienced that distinction yourself? Well, it's so amazing. Having had cats for 20 years, people don't know about your cats until they are invited in your domain. And I actually, when I was single, I found them to be a very good sort of way to discriminate potential boyfriends because, you know, did their reaction range from hostility to indifference? It, it never got past indifference. But with a dog, you've got to be out there in the, in the public. You are walking that dog. And in fact, my beagle is so cute. I'm just her accessory. I mean, no <laughs> one sees me. It's all, I mean, people literally stop their cars. <gasps> a beagle, a beagle. And, and I, I came to know all these neighbors. It was like people are running out to, you know, form covens or something in the middle of the night. None of us actually know each other's names. We all just know each other's dogs' names. So I, I, I got to, you know, interact with people in a, a wholly different kind of way, and I'm normally not that friendly, but you cannot have a dog and not be friendly. Forget it. Hmm. One thing you do in your, do- in your, in your book is that you, you, you tell us a little bit about your admittedly limited uh, exposure to dogs before actually getting Sasha. Uh, in fact, I, I think you say at one point that really you'd only lived with one other dog, and that was kind of an interesting uh, checkered story, shall we say. My tragic family childhood dog, Brandy. This dog, this dog was a German Shepherd. We, we got him after a break-in in our house. So he did have this kind of vicious streak. He, we, my parents allowed him to run wild, and he was always getting in trouble. But with us, all he wanted was love, 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 love. I mean, you could, you could have rubbed your fingerprints off trying to satisfy his need to be petted. And my, my parents had kind of an operatically unhappy marriage, and I think Brandy kind of picked up on this because one day he was up on the second floor sun porch as we were pulling away in the car. He took a few steps back, ran, and jumped off the second floor sun porch in kind of this operatic suicidal bid for love (laughs) like the end of tosca yeah yeah it was you know and it and it horrified me he survived thank goodness but i he after that he realized okay forget trying to get enough love from this family so he kind of scarred me for life and i thought i can't take this from a human being let alone some other creature we have to talk about another neat little dog story which you tell since you're talking to somebody in Wisconsin. And this is this wonderful bed and breakfast story which you tell about a night when you uh, encountered a dog. And it probably discouraged you from running out and purchasing a dog for any time shortly after that. Uh, yeah, for many years. Well, I, I always like to go not stay at a chain motel, but stay at authentic places. So I was in a little town in Wisconsin, and I um, booked myself in into a bed and breakfast. Turned By the way, you say just a small town in the book, but do you remember which town? I'm sorry. That, I don't. That's all right. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, and the owner said, you know, we have a German Shepherd. I hope that's all right. Now, I had not really encountered a German Shepherd since Brandy, so I thought, oh, this I can make up to this dog. It'd be wonderful to be with a German Shepherd again. Well, it turns out the, the 
husband and wife who ran the bed and breakfast had to go off to visit a sick relative, and they put me in the hands of their 17-year-old son, who was never to be seen again. So I went around, I did my work, I came back, and um, their, their German shepherd was so distraught that the, their son, Brad, never showed up, that this dog howled and screamed and ran around the house all night long. And I had had very little dog experience. I mean, I tried to drag the dog into bed with me. I, I, I thought at 3 a.m., okay, the dog has to go for a walk. I put on my raincoat. It was very cold in Wisconsin, and a surprising number of people are driving pickup trucks and drinking beer at 2 and 3 in the morning in Wisconsin. So I'm terrified. I'm out there with this dog. And, and finally, I said, the dog is going in the living room. I shut the dog in this lovely living room which when I woke up by myself in the morning, he had completely destroyed. Um, and, and finally, as I was eating breakfast, the dog passed out after spending the night destroying the house. The son shows up, says, was everything okay? I said, it was just fine. I left my check and left. <laughs> I don't know if they've ever taken in another guest. <laughs> or under, at least under those circumstances. Or maybe they thought a little bit about their dog. And, uh... I don't think I've ever stayed at a bed and breakfast since then. Hmm. I, I decided to switch to the chain motel. A <laughs> <laughs> little less destructive sometimes. Well, at any rate, you and your family do take in uh, a wonderful beagle named named uh, Sasha. And uh, ahead of it, you, you pay a visit to, to the pound, essentially, or to, to an animal shelter. And, you know, that, that's one of the more serious moments in the book, as you write about really what is kind of a heartbreaking experience of seeing all these dogs and uh, either not wanting any of them or wanting all of them. And, uh, and it's, it's not an easy experience. And actually, you end up not walking out, I think, with a dog. Well, it is very, we decided, all right, we're going to, as long as we're going to get a dog, we're going to rescue a dog. So, of course, you go in there and you just feel, you feel like some governor who's leaving innocent people on death row and not commuting the sentence. I mean, and you look at these dogs, I mean, some of them were kind of comatose and crusty, and some of them are covered with scars, and you think, oh, I can find the wonderful dog in there. Um, we did go, go in, and we actually found an adorable beagle whose owner claimed it a few hours later but that set us on the beagle path we were now programmed to have beagles so we did get our beagle sasha from a rescue group but to assuage our guilt we have since then had six foster beagles come through this house and they've just been an amazing range um most of them have urinated on the bed that has been sort of a consistent thing but um they one of them turns out, as I find now looking back, was the greatest dog in the history of canine development. And we, we let him go and be adopted because he was our first foster, and we didn't know at the time, hang on to this dog, you'll never find as great a one. Hmm. But we've, we've, uh, we've, we had uh, a beagle puppy who was rescued from uh, a laboratory experiment, and had a little tattoo number in his ear. I mean, what could be more adorable and heartbreaking than a beagle with a little tattooed ear? Wow. Uh, so, so we've gotten to, you know, sort of help, help dogs in general by doing this foster thing. You uh, had the interesting experience, as my wife and I did, of, of, of taking a dog to, uh, to obedience school. 
and uh, did not meet with the most rousing of success right off the bat. I love this one paragraph when you describe your initial struggles in saying, during the classes, my husband and I realized, as with everything dog-related, that we were doing something wrong. Without a treat in hand, we were unable to get Sasha to do a simple sit, yet Eileen, that's the dog trainer, could bring her into the center of the room, do something that looked like a gang sign with her fingers, and get Sasha practically playing the harmonica. It really is a mystery, isn't it? The we way asked that Eileen to come live with us, um, and she refused. <laughs> you know, it was very clear that we had a, a special needs dog, but um, after this six-week six week class where all these other dogs were doing tricks and standing on their hind legs, and so, you know, Sasha spent the whole class trying to sniff the other dog's rear ends. I mean, I, we, we discovered Sasha wants to bark at other dogs, poop in the house, and sleep. So, you know, obedience school was not really in, you know, her mental framework. We finished the class. Sasha got a diploma. And I really think George Bush should look into No Dog Left Behind because this was a purely social promotion. She, she didn't really learn anything. Yeah, you, uh, you called her at one point the, uh, the class clown more than anything. Well, every time, you know, the, the instructor would make each of us get into the middle of the room and show our progress with the dog, and it was just, you know, it was being at, like, your elementary school kid's talent show when a kid gets out there with the violin, eh, 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 and everyone's horrified. Every time Sasha would come into the middle of the room, the tension would, would just be so terrible. We would be sweating, and the other dog owners would say, well, just get Sasha out of here, please. <laughs> well, as much as you uh, struggled to get uh, Sasha uh, house-trained, uh, what helped keep things in perspective for you was uh, the the misadventures which uh, I think your your sister Liz had with her two dogs, which uh, gave her, in some respects, even more monumental trouble. The two worst dogs in the history of... It's not... You know, we're not sure. Were dogs domesticated 12, 14,000 years ago? She had the two worst dogs since then. Uh, <laughs> One was a Fila Brasileiro, which um, you're not going to find too often because, well, in Great Britain, they've banned it under the Dangerous Dog Act. I mean, this is a monstrous-looking thing. I always thought it looked like the missing link between reptile and mammal. The, the biggest problem with this dog was not that it would try to dismember you, which was a problem. It was worse if this dog loved you because it just produced this foul foam from its muzzle 24 hours a day, and it would slime you, and it slimed her house. Essentially, her house became uninhabitable. Mm. And her other dog was an Akita named Canute, who was not as bad as Paris, but toward the end of Canute's life, he developed, um, actually the Walt Disney Company might want to look into buying the right to Canute's life. Canute could produce prodigious amount of ear flubber, um, and again, this, this wax would just come pouring out, and he would shake his head. And for a year after Canute's death, my sister was still scraping ear flubber wax off her walls. <laughs> oh, my word. It, it, was, it was just horrifying. So whenever I got down about Sasha, who has now come to be a pretty decent pet, I would think, at least I don't own Paris or Canute. Mm. He does make some uh, some progress because at one point um i should say she made such progress that at one point um it was decided that maybe 
uh, she was capable of being some sort of service dog. I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about the adventure you talk about in your book in the chapter called Canine Candy Striper. Well, after our first not wholly successful experience with dog training, we did find a trainer who really was able to work with Sasha and get her not to be a dog you could show an obedience ring, but a dog you could live with. And one day he said, um, you know, I think you should, I work with a service organization, I think you should think about bringing Sasha to nursing homes. Now, I thought this was a little like having a baby book that the chapter from toilet training goes to taking your SAT. I just said, <laughs> whoa, wait a minute. This is. And the trainer Todd said, no, I, you know, Sasha is the fourth best beagle I've ever trained. I couldn't bring myself to ask if he'd only trained four beagles. But he said that she, she had the, the qualities to make her a service dog. So I went through the, the training program, and Sasha, there's a certain passivity to Sasha, which is perfect for bringing her into these kind of places because she'll just kind of take it. And we started going to nursing homes, and it really was wonderful because uh, the residents there would look at her and say, that's a hound dog. I know a hound dog when I see one. And many, many of them had grown up. Uh, I, I live in Washington, D.C., in rural Virginia, and would tell stories about having beagles and hunting dogs as children. So it was this wonderful thing that Sasha was able to do just by appearing. She also did clean up, you know, if they'd left any crumbs around themselves, <laughs> Sasha would clean that up, too. <laughs> we learn a little bit uh, about other dogs in, in the pages of this book, including as, as something you've already touched on briefly, which is that uh, you visited a, a, a certain facility which trains dogs uh, for homeland security work, uh, for those dogs that sniff out things that aren't supposed to be there. And you really give us some, some interesting insight into how dogs are trained to do this uh, kind of work. Yes, I went to... I. I went to the training facility for the uh, dogs that sniff out, uh, contra- uh, sniff out money, drugs, and explosives. And, of course, since September 11th, explosives has become a, a really much bigger uh, part of the program. As, as the head of the program said to me, he said, now what do you do? I mean, the dogs are trained when they smell one of these things, they sit. He said, now when you've got an explosives-trained dog, said, what do you think you do when your dog sits? I said, I don't know. He said, run. Um, <laughs> they're, they're trained. They are not cross-trained. It's very, very, very important that each one is trained only to sniff that specific thing because, for example, if the dog is sniffing drugs, you don't want the person to be able to say, oh, that dog was just sniffing the money in my wallet. So they're, they're only trained to, to sniff either money, drugs, or explosives. Also, they're trained, the, the uh, money dogs are trained to not sit unless it's a, a currency above a certain amount because you don't want them, you know, pulling at everyone's wallet. It has to be a big wad of currency. Hmm. And that the reward they're given is a rolled white towel. These dogs live <laughs> <laughs> to get a rolled white towel that they can then bite and play with. And... And when, they, when dogs are screened to come in for, you know, potential for this, they're, they're, you know, sent to sniff things. And then if they have any capacity, they're thrown this rolled white towel. 
and you know they go crazy for it and i just thought wouldn't life be better if everyone responded to this i mean i could get my husband to make dinner by saying honey there's a rolled white towel for you later tonight if you get in there and make some dinner <laughs> very good the book ends so powerfully with what had to be among the most frightening moments that that any dog owner can have that moment when the dog uh, slips off the leash and is and is hit by a car. In this case, it's a, I think it's a youngster in the in the neighborhood who has Sasha on a leash and loses control when another dog comes yeah. along and and uh, pow! The next thing you know, uh, your dog is nearly killed in this encounter with a car. Um, it's interesting the way you write about this because uh, we get a sense of all the deep emotions at play, and let you and yet you also write dispassionately about it to some extent too just wanting us to know what it's sort of like step by step by step to have to uh experience something like this it it was so horrible and and it and it was my fault because i had let this little boy in the neighborhood you know sasha's so cute all the kids are always trying oh can i walk her can i walk her i said okay you can hold the leash and i was holding the actual end and he was holding the middle and he said no i'm big enough i can do it And I said, okay, I'll give him a second. And I took my hands off for a second. And then in the most horrifying choreography, at that second, around the corner appeared another dog. And then onto the street turned a car. Sasha's a beagle. She's not a dog you can take off leash. She immediately pulled herself out of this little neighbor boy's arms to run across the street to see this other dog. Was hit dead on. I, mean, I could. I heard the thud, and I and I was standing there thinking, I just saw my dog get killed. I mean, I saw her roll under the wheels. Fortunately, the driver was not driving that quickly and was able to stop. And Sasha raised her head, and you know, I I picked her up. Um, my daughter was playing with a friend. I got my daughter, uh, who was eight, put her in the back seat with Sasha, and we drove to the vet only a few minutes away. And I said to my daughter please, you know, pat Sasha, tell her everything's okay. And my daughter said, Mom, I can see the bone in her leg. I can't look at her. Mm. Um, and we got her to the Miraculously, despite this direct hit, basically her leg was messed up, and uh, they can do wonderful things uh, these days and patched her back up. You'd never know anything had happened to her. So I, it was very strange that in the course of this book, where, where I, I had started it, you know, having had almost no experience with dogs, I saw my dog almost get killed, and I also, I was attacked by a dog in the course of working on this. Oh, dog. yes. So I, I really felt, it was this odd thing. I'd had the gamut of awful and wonderful dog experiences all within this short period of time. Yeah, I mean, you've really experienced firsthand just about everything that comes from this, I mean, the joys and the near tragedies yes. and uh, all the many, many frustrations that are right. part of owning a dog. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do have to say, as I started doing this book and talking to friends, an amazing number of my friends have dogs who either save their lives or other people's lives. And so, you know, it's, it's not just Lassie. I mean, just regular run-of-the-mill dogs. Uh, I have a friend whose dog started barking wildly looking down the street and saw, it turns out she was seeing a wisp of smoke coming from the home of an elderly neighbor because my friend called the fire department at that moment. They came just before the house exploded. Mm. 
Yet another reason to own a dog. See? <laughs> or to or hope, or hope that your neighbors own a dog. The book is again called What the Dog Did, Tales from a Formerly Reluctant Dog Owner. It's published by Bloomsbury. It's a delight from start to finish. The author, Emily Yaffe. Emily Yaffe, I'm so glad we got to talk about this wonderful book. And best wishes to you and to all the dogs which you will own in the years ahead. And I thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show. Greg, thank you so much.